and welcome back to the Nymon Be Praised. I'm Jack. And I am Joe. And uh, we are, this week we are here because I made a very bad mistake. Yeah. I made a very bad mistake indeed. Yeah, you were bold last week, weren't you? Yeah, it's, I, I thought I could do it. I thought I could, I thought I could make the case for the power of crawl. Can I paraphrase? I'm, yes. I'm going to make a case that the power of Kroll is the best Doctor Who story of all time and I'm going to win, is what you said. Did I really? Yeah. Oh, no. And you can't oh, blame it on is... being sleep deprived this time. You were wide no, awake. I, do you know what? I was, I was actually going to do that. I was actually going to say, well, it was early in the morning. You know, I didn't know what I was saying. Um, just, just to say, um, this is technically, for no reason whatsoever, the first episode of the second series of um, our round of podcasts. Um, so we kind of had 10 episodes before, and then we'll do 10 episodes now. Um, and we are starting again with Graham Williams, which is where we started at the beginning of, which feels a while ago now. Oh, very, very yeah, it was a month or two. Yeah, but I, I, I have no sense of time. Well, ten weeks Fitting, ago, talking about in a. Oh well, I'm sure you kept track. Mm. I um, uh, <laughs> I think it was very funny for me because I saw on our Facebook that it was like, and I think on your blog it was like, this is the complete first series <laughs> of the I would be praised. I didn't I like, even tell you. Oh. I was like, that is very interesting. I did not know that last episode was our series finale. This will give you an idea of how well we collaborate. I, yes. Um, Hey, you know, whatever gets us there, what what works for us, you know, it keeps us on our toes. But just a a huge thank you for everyone that has listened so far, because far more people have tuned in than I ever suspected. So that's really lovely and thank you for any feedback that we've had it's been really lovely thank you it's been really grateful and especially to um the other doctor who podcasters who have given us um some lovely um sort of promotion and uh comments as well we very much appreciate it a huge shout out to who back when which is a phenomenal podcast with a huge backlog of episodes who give us a shout out every week they do a classic story um and to um to watch who which is another fantastic podcast um with uh, a a guy who's a long-term fan and um a lady who is completely new to doctor who uh, <laughs> and it's a it's a really fantastic uh, and they were particularly pleased with your uh, uh, defense of martha jones last week so I, I was, I was very relieved to hear that. I I was very I'm glad that my words are resonating in the in the podcast sphere. Podcast land? I I don't know. I, I don't want to get into that. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's a nation of some kind. Yeah. What was well, that? Podcastia? I don't know. I'm just trying to be science fiction That sound that definitely sounds like I don't know, like a location Paul McGann lands somewhere in like the second or third series of his audio. We're in podcastia. Um, I'm going to be bold now and suggest a slight change of direction with something. 
Okay. Usually we open these stories with a quote from the Horns of Nymon. Now, there were a few moments <laughs> towards the end of that first series where we were a little bit desperate for the quotes because we cherry-picked all the best ones. I would therefore suggest that we we choose another story for series two. And I know one that you can quote beautifully, and that is The Brain of Morbius. Oh, God, I have to... Um... Do I have to? Do I have to do a, a, a quote on the spot? Yeah, go on. Because I know you know. You, honestly, you could pull one out of the air from Brandon Morbius. Ah, uh, uh, I, I mean, I know, I know. There's a, a whole monologue. His whole little monologue, Morbius's monologue at the end of, I think, the part one cliffhanger. Uh, is one I really love, which is going, oh, you will come to destroy me. Oh no, the brain of Morbius, <laughs> or something like that. I'm not uh, sure that's an actual I, quote. <laughs> oh no! I, oh, I, I know the bit you mean. I know the bit you mean. Where where Sarah's walking in blind. Yeah, fumbling in the dark. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I I I think for this one, mm. I'm going to say, uh, Chop Suey, the Galactic Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go Tom Baker as well and say, could you spare a glass of water? Oh, such a good line. Such a good joke. Such a great story. Didn't you say you, did you say you've used that line in conversation before? (laughs) Too many times. It's one of those lines. um, Like I know so little about telebiogenesis that you can just so easily drop into conversation. Does it get, does it get a laugh? Yes, actually, yes. You know, the the line I drop in the most that gets the most laughs is um, Thou Craggy Knob from The Twin Dilemma. Well, what can you say to that? (laughs) I shall tell you in what context. I, oh, okay. I really don't want to know now. I don't think you do. Um, Anyways, you have 10 weeks, 10 quotes from Brain of Morbius. We started. We'll continue next week. Wonderful. Oh, this is all just a getting to the elephant of the room of me making the case for crawl. Yes. Isn't it? That's right. I would, since we're on a, uh, a new series, can I petition for us to rename our podcast to Devil's Advocate? Because <laughs> I'm not sure I believe my own argument. And you know what? Which, strangely enough, as I've, I've, obviously I'm talking against crawl. And I really enjoy it. So, like, we've, we've, we've basically taken on the wrong roles. I think we have. I mean, it's not like I didn't enjoy it. It's actually, I think, quite an entertaining story. Mm. It's just very hard to argue that it's the best bit of Doctor Who ever made. Well, go on. Off you go. I'm, I'm desperate to hear this. I, yeah, I, I will say that I was... As far from a theoretical position, from a debating position, it was very hard to work out what kind of stance I was going to take. Was because no matter what what position I take, it is going to involve some degree of overselling the power of crawl as a bit of television. Um, but I wasn't sure if that involved me making an earnest case for it in spite of its flaws, or just 
overselling it and making all these grandiose, enormous grand claims about its quality that are not verified by the story at all. Which angle I was did nonetheless going to just decide to take then? Um, I I ultimately chose neither. I think I'm trying to do both at the same time. Oh, okay. Do you have, do you have an so opening think, statement like, or anywhere you'd like to start? <laughs> Uh, let me get my notes up. I I, I, I wrote a thesis. Um, a thesis? Uh, I wow. think this is more a general... Um, uh, yeah, this will be in my... Mani- this will be in the Kroll Manifesto, or the... It's the first page of those Kroll sacred texts that Romana and the Doctor find. It'll just be my words. How long was um, your dissertation, can I ask? Was it 15,000 words? It was uh, twenty thousand words. Is this is your your thesis on the power of crawl as long as that? I I no. <laughs> what shame! <laughs> I I'm I'm not sure there is anybody on earth who really wants seventy pages of analysis on the power of crawl. Oh, I would. Uh, Doctor Sandifer could do that without a doubt. Not <laughs> quite possible. Quite possibly, that would be delightful. But essentially, my um, my argument was is that um, uh, uh, I think it was the late night, the late late uh night show uh, talk show host Craig Ferguson who once argued that Doctor Who is the triumph of intellect and romance over brute force and ignorance, uh, which is a wonderful summation of the show. And I except um, when Eric's award is uh, script editing, and then it's the complete reverse. Quite possibly. Mm. And so what I what I posited to you is that uh, the power of crawl is a story of the show's overwhelming, uh, the underlying, an overwhelming sense of optimism and humor, winning over the unrelating cynicism of Robert Holmes. Having been assigned this story, I uh, which I don't think he wanted to write. I think I no. I, I think I think he was kind of done at this point. He'd done stories in the Third Doctor era. He'd script edited three and a half seasons, and then he had done a couple of scripts for Williams. I think he was kind of done at this point. I I think so because I believe the story came about because Graham Williams essentially assigned him to write. The sto- a story with the biggest Doctor Who monster ever in it. Yeah, because that and, always works. What were they thinking? Yeah. With their reduced budget as well. Well, you know, there's nothing like a Lovecraftian horror like um, uh, like Crawl to terrify you. Uh, and maybe in some regards it succeeds. Isn't Lovecraftian but, uh, horror so- more sort of conceptual? Conceptual and you know Cthulhu's a big tentacle monster as well. That's so I, I, I think I can, I think I can superficially get away with this comparison. And when Lovecraft was a terrible um, racist as well, and this story does handle racism. I've seen some links. You've seen some links. Well, you know, just just what I just said there. I see. I, oh right, I thought you meant like website links. I was like, no, 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 no. It's a link know. between Lovecraft and the Power of Krell. Oh, yes, yes, I see. Uh, so, you know, this story deals in a lot of Holmes, uh, Robert Holmes's usual cynical themes. So, you know, corrupt corporations, 
exploitation. Uh, you know, you got gun runners in there who reappear in um, the caves of Endrazani later on. Uh, you've got bureaucratic incompetence and corruption as well. So there are the, the hallmarks of Robert Holmes's usual sort of uh, just talking points. Uh, however, it also uh, grapples with, as I said, another cynicism, which is Robert Holmes being assigned to write this story. It's a brief he resented, and the subsequent story feels like a very cynical joke. Uh, it's a cynical joke version of the show itself. Uh, it's playing up to the fact that the show can look dull, cheap looking, a bit heavy handed in its morals. And, uh, and yet, I think the Dr. Romana swan in so vibrantly and triumphantly again, against this double dollop of cynicism. It's, uh, it's one thing for the show to be a vehicle for Holmes' cynicism. It's quite another for him to half-heartedly be cynical at the expense of the show itself. Uh, it's, and, you know, the whole, like, he's so cynical about this story. It's literally fashioned out of the biggest fart joke in the entire show. Are you basically saying Robert Holmes has got the hump, so he's deliberately pointing at the show's flaws? I, yes, that is entirely what I'm saying. Why would you uh, do that? Because he was in a very bad mood. He wrote The Sunmakers because he was angry about his taxes. Now he's just angry because he's having to write Doctor Who and he's being given a brief. Yeah, exactly. And however, in a story that is uh, predisposed to fail, it turns the one of the most criticised flaws of the Williams era into a winning strength, uh, which is that uh, at this stage of the show, it is the Tom Baker show. Mm. Uh, and the enjoyability of the Doctor's company uh, and the enjoyability of Romana's company make this fun. Uh, and that's what makes this thats what makes this the greatest Doctor Who story of all time. Against all odds, against all that cynicism, uh, directed... Directed by the writer at the show itself, the characters win and shine through and save, the, and not only save the day, they save this incredibly glum script. The Doctor and Romana <laughs> swan through and have just have fun, in, completely in the face of Robert Holmes's cynicism. It is not a glamorous victory for the show. It's not glamorous. It's very dirty and very rugged, but it's a wonderful affirmation that the show can succeed. And even when it is all the odds are uh, when the, the the deck is stacked against it, uh, it's the victory that it's an episode that reminds us why we love to keep watching the show, even when it's falling apart a little bit at the seams. I think you're incredibly bold to suggest that this is a success. <laughs> um, and I, I, I rather love the fact that you are uh, you use all of its flaws to your advantage there. I might suggest that that the argument that it's the best Doctor Who story of all time has the consistency of one of Kroll's soggy farts, though. Do you know what, though? I think, I think you, there's, a, there's a lot of weight in what you just said there. However, you, you talk about the humour and you talk about, like, you know, the sparkling moments and, and, and all of that. 
I think this is potentially against some stiff competition, especially in the 80s, the weakest directed Doctor Who story of the entire classic era. You think so? I, I strongly think so. Do you know what? I, I actually um, went on to watch the first two, because I was watching on BritBox, and I went on to watch the next two episodes uh, of Armageddon Factor, a story which is like criticised far more than Kroll. And immediately, the direction, and that's the director of City of Death in Armageddon Factor, um, you've got a director there who is framing his shots, who is using lighting very moodily. Kroll is so flatly directed. The opening shot is so undramatic and unmemorable. It's just it's just a, a shot of like Finna in the refinery and someone walks in and goes, oh, hello, um, I brought you some Vizzy discs. It's just, you remember the beginning of uh, Genesis of the Daleks where it opens with the camera going through the fog and, you know, uh, the, the guy's mm. coming through in the gas mask. What happened to that sort of opening? It's just so flat and so but when <laughs> when Ron Dutt is introduced, he just sort of glides across the screen in a boat. And you're like, well, who's this now? You know, there's there's no point in this story where I feel any real care. The sets are really, really poor and they're shot in such a mundane way. Um, I just feel like there's no real attempt to dramatize this story. As it stands, as, you... oh, oh, sorry, go on. <laughs> No, no, I, I, I'll let you finish your point. Well, as it as it stands, this is like um, like the ultimate, I think, Doctor Who B movie. You know, it's about a, a big limp-wristed uh, squid creature um, that attacks an oil rig for, and and green men that you know hang out mm -hmm. in the rain, flashing a bit of arse. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's ridiculously campy and, and B movie-ish. And it should be really funny and really fun. And the director should be behind this, um, kind of playing it up a bit, which is what William Zero does really well. But this guy, um, it's the same. I think it's the same guy. Is it uh, of Norman Stewart? I think it's the same guy that directed Underworld, which tells you everything you need to know. Um, and he's directing this as a drama. He's 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 attempting to try because it's so serious and it should just be ridiculous what, and fun. What would you say? I mean, would you say there's any? Are there many stories in the Williams era that era that are directed explicitly as a comedy? I'd say Reboss, City of Death. Um, so a lot of the pirate planet, Horns of Nymon, um, a lot of creatures from the pit. Um, <clears throat> I mean, they're overtly comedic scripts and the director just kind of goes with that. Nightmare of Eden is like a parody of Doctor Who sometimes. It's so over the top and zany. <clears throat> um, it's like total comic strip. But this is, this is one of those rare Williams stories that is so serious. And I, I don't understand why, because it just it should be like the ultimate comic strip Doctor Who. It should be really colourful and silly, but and everyone's playing it so kind of drably. I just don't get it. I don't. I don't I, get it. I sat there going, you know what? And weirdly, because it's done so seriously, these completely ridiculous things are happening, like people being dragged into pipes by these enormous. Um, 
tentacles. It's so funny because the actors are really oh. trying to sell it, you know? Oh, yeah, like when um, the head tribesman uh, dies at the oh, end and he's God. kind of begging and pleading Crow. in front of this kind of limp tentacle. <laughs> It's so flapping do you, about. Do you remember the bit where the tentacles are like coming through a wall? There's like three or four tentacles coming through a wall with Crow's head like peeping over the top. <laughs> oh man. I, 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 to go back to your point about this episode's direction, mm. is the direction very good? No. It's not, and you are right. However, I think... That's the point. They were were going for bad direction. No, that's not what I was going to go for. I was going to say, certainly in the studio bits, it is very flatly directed, but I think a lot of studio stuff looks very flatly directed anyway. And certainly, I think the flaws of the direction are masked because of how, because of the external shooting that's happening outside. Uh, and you've got kind of this lush, sort of smarshy swampland environment that kind of, I think, masks but some of the imperfections. Well I think it's a beautiful location, but it's, there's, mm. you watch it, there's just a lot of long shots. And, um, you know, it's kind of like how they filmed it in the 80s with lots of people kind of lined up in a row talking. It's not high angles low angles it's not fast paced it's not cut together with any kind of you know pace it's it's a fantastic location and it's very vivid because of it but it always would be whether the direction was terrible or whether the direction was fantastic (laughs) well i have a question for you then because they did film in a genuine marshland i was reading in one of the little notes in the um uh uh uh, in the DVD slip that I have, and they said that you know it was the the marshland was so thick that Mary Tam actually lost a shoe. Um, oh wow! How much of the has of the direction can we chalk up to bad direction and not just difficulties actually in, in difficulties in filming in a natural swamp, like practical limitations? Well, I mean that's fair, but I think if you're going to film in a swamp then you need to make allowances for the fact that you're filming in a swamp. Yeah, they did. Like, they put Tom Baker in ridiculously big Wellington boots that went up up past his ankles. I mean, there's some lovely shots. There's some really lovely shots of, like, the hovercraft going across. It looks like there's a bit of money on on the screen when it's on location. Mm. Um, Yeah, they do. They do some proper night shoots as well. Yeah, which which I rather like. Although then it marries kind of unconvincingly with the studio, which is just a, a, an effect of the time, unfortunately. Okay, make a case for the truly dreadful model shots of the refinery that looks like this tiny little model <clears throat> in like a puddle. Because I'm telling you now, Terror of the Zygons did an oil rig. And Douglas Canfield shot that from below and close up, and it looked like a genuine oil rig being smashed to pieces. I, I, hmm, okay. Uh, I think the the oil rig is. Oh, and then when Crow rises up in the background and like starts throwing his tentacles over. Oh man, it's so funny. It's 
it's not good, but I enjoy it because it's so funny. It's for exactly it's that not reason. good. You're right there. It's not good. It's hilarious, but it's not good. Well, exactly. The entertainment value is pristine. How can you not enjoy Kroll limply flapping one enormous tentacle over this pathetic model shot? Like for half, I made him come in. I said, look at this. And he went, oh, that's not too bad. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's terrible. Then again, you know, they were making, you know, moon bases out of egg cartons and the horns of Nymon. Oh, see, you just made me feel better now thinking about the horns of Nymon. Thank you. <laughs> okay, all right. What about what about the men in green paint? Because I think I think this is what Rusty Davis was talking about when he's you know when he said like Planet Zog and and you know the indigenous yeah. tribes of people. Why are we supposed to care about these people? They're all so horrible. They're supposed to be the victims in this. They're the ones that are suffering racism. They're the ones that are being fooled. They're the ones that are being given defective weapons. They're like the fool guy in this story. And they're all so unlikable. Like, I don't care if they die or not. I want them to die. They're really irritating. I, uh... uh <laughs> the... I, I think they are one of the less well-realized aspects of the story um, because, you know, th th there I, is, I, I think the idea of them is, is quite solid. Uh, well, I say quite solid. They are called the Swampies. We don't actually find out what they're actually called, I don't think. And to be fair, um, you know, we do actually see one of them in a swamp. So, you know. That's true. You know, bang on the money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I I found them enjoyable as foils for the the, the Doctor and Romana because they do get some funny moments opposite the Doctor and Romana. I I particularly like uh, the scene where they capture the pair of them and you get that really funny exchange where it's like, oh well, you better introduce me as what? Oh, I don't know, as a wise and wonderful person. Uh, get to the point. Don't exaggerate. This is a seize them. I told you not to exaggerate. But, they do get some but funny But that's moments. them, not the Swampies. The Swampies aren't adding anything yeah. to that scene. That's the Doctor and Romana. Oh, damn. Well, but, damn, but, 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 do you not think, like, when people think about Doctor Who, I'm talking about, like, you know, normal people that don't obsess over it like we do, um, and they, they probably think of this exact visual of, like, men in green paint, um, you know, in a boggy yeah. swamp, pretending it's a planet like it's less it's an maybe that's what robert holmes is going for when he's in his in his bad mood like yeah i'm gonna give them what they what they think doctor who's gonna be like but that doesn't yeah, stop I, it being a terrible I, cliche you know i i i get a lot of entertainment value out of the swampies you know i i find it very funny that they apparently spent a whole night just jogging on the spot sh shouting crawl crow very unenthused. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of lovely thigh on display. I'll give them that. Yeah. Those, yeah. I mean, anyone who complains that, that Louise Jameson, you know, only wore a loincloth, well, that's the men's turn now, you know, and there's plenty of them. Yeah, yeah and uh, plenty of tender green thigh for you. I tell, um, I tell you, like going back to the direction quickly, like there's 
there's so many moments of missed the mark. I think the moment where, you know, where they're going to like attack uh, Thorn with the weapons and one light yeah. explodes in the sky's face. And I oh, yeah. think it's supposed yeah. to be like a, oh my God, so dramatic, exciting moment. Like, it's so funny. <laughs> the guy's like, oh! <laughs> It just kind of collapses and falls backwards. But I think it's supposed to be like this tragic moment, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I, I, I've all constantly found myself comparing this to Kate Randrazani, where, where there are so many comparisons. Um, but there's a moment in Kate Randrazani where the guns seize up um, and they're like, oh, God, you know, let's forward anyway. And then one of them gets, like, blasted halfway across the set and they can't fight back to the androids. And, and in comparison, it's, it's moody and dramatic and shocking. This is just hilariously awful. Well, you you mentioned the caves of Androzani. Let me, allow me to cheat a little bit. And if you um, are gonna say that the caves of Androzani is worse than the power of Kroll. No, I'm not gonna say that. I'm gonna say without the caves of Androzani, you would not, uh, without the power of Kroll, you would not get the caves of Androzani. Well, you think this is this is like his dry run? <laughs> this is this this is his rehearsal. I, I, I would, I would say dry run is perhaps being a little generous to the power of Kroll. I think um, possibly he looked over his shoulder and went, "What a shit job I did there. I'm going to do that much better this time." But I think it does go to show that. Uh, there are some ideas and concepts in this story that are valid and do in fact get deployed to oh, much greater I, effect I later. I would never deny so, that. There's, so there's... therefore... Oh, go on. Yeah, so therefore I think it is the greatest uh, Doctor Who story ever if you accept it as a companion piece for the... With Well, let, let me allow me to put it to you then that the power of crawl is the best Doctor Who story ever told, because without the power of crawl, you would not get the Caves of Androzani, one of the famously uh, revered best Doctor Who stories of all time. So you get power of crawl, you get the power of crawl and the Caves of Androzani as a two for one deal, uh, because without without crawl, you wouldn't get the greatest Doctor Who story of all time. I, um, so by default, and, then you're uh, admitting this isn't the greatest Doctor Who story of all time. No, I'm saying I'm saying you know y- y- you have to accept it as the as an, as a, the precursor <laughs> to the greatest Doctor Who story. It, it, it flies to the top spot on the coattails of the case of Caves of Androzani. <laughs> well, I'm sold. Um, <laughs> do you know what? I genuinely, I actually think Crow is better realised than the Magma Creature, though. From Gaze of Androzani. You do? I do, yeah. Crow <laughs> shot on film. Like, take away the matting, like that terrible line where he's superimposed. The creature itself is really well done. Oh, no, like the model, the actual monster model is a really detailed one. It's really good. It's just the way it's superimposed oh, into the into the, into the the footage is... Of all the stories that have done, this could just do with a few CGI tweaks, couldn't it? And they could make that look really, really good. I'm sure if they tried to do it in the new series, you know, Kroll would look fantastic. Okay, I'm gonna, Maybe. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring up something about the direction again. 
I'm so sorry. I know. I, I know. I keep, oh. keep. Well, I'm sorry. It's so badly directed. It, it's worth saying. Okay. Okay. Go for it. Okay. So in episode four, the doctor climbs a ladder in a rocket silo <clears throat> and has to like you know, stop the rocket from going. Both. That's so funny. It's the wobbliest of wobbly sets we've ever. You know, I I don't agree with the wobbly set thing. I think it's quite rare. That is so wobbly that there was complaints made in house at the BBC about how wobbly that scene was. The ladders Were sway there? in and the walls sway in. It's just really poor. Yeah, but it's all worth it because Tom Baker just whacks this really flimsy set with a hammer and the whole thing shifts. That's very true. That is very true. Oh. Like, Tom Baker does, does literally lift this up. I will agree with that. Like, every time he's on screen, he's so charismatic. He's literally holding this production up with his bare hands. His, oh, oh, I, and, you know, I, he, he, for somehow... He is having an absolute blast in the mm. story. Don't tell, don't ask me how, but he's he's having a great time. Have you heard the commentary? No, I haven't oh, actually. God, I think I want to. It's him and John Leeson. That every time Crow appears, he just starts going, "Oh yes, yes, yes!" <laughs> he's loving it. It's so much more fun watching him watch it. You know, it's it's brilliant. I do you know what do you know what I really love in this story? It's a mm. uh, and since apparent and you know when I say I really love this moment, I guess I am technically arguing I love this moment so much that I think it's the one of the best moments of all time. Wow, um, go on. No, no, no. I'm not actually arguing that, but because that is my position, I am default arguing that anything I love in the story is therefore the best. Okay. Go for it. Um, but I really, one of the moments I really love, because it is so silly, is when they are, you know, it, the, the scene where they're being interrogated is actually where they're put on the, the, the kind of plant torture device, the stretcher, uh, does actually get some fairly funny lines in there. But it's and not I, stretching I, them. They're not stretched. They're literally, they're, their arms are like this. I, uh, I, I, I get, yeah, you're right, but the dialogue is still kind of funny. Yeah, but yeah. I, do you know how fun? Do you know how funny it is? How utterly ridiculously funny it is when the doctor just s screams so loud ah! he shatters the glass. I love it when he goes, "What is it?" I'd have sacked him. Who? The architect. <laughs> that window. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's. It's it's a it's a funny routine of you know the doctor just going like I've been in so many prisons that he's starting to critique the architects of his own prisons. But I think like Tom Baker is the one person. I don't even think Mary Tam is playing up the comic moments in this particularly well. But Tom Baker is just like a law unto himself at this point, and he's just going to have fun mm. in every story, whether you want him to or not. So everyone else is kind of being directed to be incredibly serious, but he. When he is on screen, suddenly it it does light up because he is just having a good giggle. Mm. And he, I think I ended up writing several of his, uh, a few of his lines at the end. I, for some reason, I don't know why it is when you have the little bad rocket scene <laughs> and uh, he's just like, well, we better say goodbye, Romana. <laughs> goodbye. <Yeah. laughs> 
Did you notice at one point he puts like a cup of tea in his pocket? Did he? As he, he, he no, no, it's a glass of water. He's given a drink in episode one and he puts it in his pocket. And as far as I know, by the end of the story, it's still there because you never see him take it out. I, I think that's really funny. I really hope that in like, I don't know, series 13, the 13th Doctor just pulls a glass of water out of her pocket. That'd be funny. That's a, 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 a long gag. While we're talking about performances, I can genuinely see the moment where Mary Tam said, I'm not doing this anymore. Is it? Is it? Is it the cliffhanger for episode, episode one? one? Yeah. Yes, there's that strong character you were promised. Yeah, yeah. John, you know, give it your all. Oh, but, you know, it's so funny that she's being threatened by this, by the joke this is monster good. suit man. But it, then, but it does her a disservice, don't you think? Like, because it doesn't look convincing. So it does. And he goes, oh, well, it probably looked more convincing from the front. And that's a funny line, but it still makes her look ridiculous. It does. It's like, I, I think Mary Tam gets by on pure effort alone, but I'm not going to lie. It's not a good story for Romana. I, 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 I hate using the word lazy, but Robert Holmes put so much effort into her character in Reboss, and I really think she shines in that story. But here, it, she is just like a hapless victim, isn't she? A little bit. God, I'm supposed to be making the case I mean, for this. Is, I'm just going to go, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a B-movie, so you need, you know, the, the perils of Pauline screaming victim. Oh, man, does it have to be Romana? She's been so strong in this season. Mm, it, it's, uh, it's not her best showing. I w- I'll be honest with you. I'll level with you there. And what about, what's his name? Glyn Owen as Ron Duck. A performance so relaxed that this this so this is the Stotts character in, from Case of Androzani. And how scary was Stotts, uh, the gun runner in Case of Androzani? Compared to this, he's just he, lying back, he's got a bit of straw in his mouth. I feel like he's just sort of wandered see, I, into I, the set and he's just like, oh, yeah, I'll do a bit of acting, you know. I wasn't sure if he was a first iteration of uh, Sabalon Glitz in some ways. Oh, he's not as funny though, he's not, and he's not as kind of. Holmes tends to overwrite these characters, doesn't he? Like, and and make them a bit pantomimic. And Ron Dutt's just a bit. It's just all there. Yeah, yeah. And he he. I think he meets the fate he deserves. And actually, do you know what? I'm going back to Cage Randolph again. Sorry. I mean, you have to. The, the same writer and it's the same story. Um, the bit where Ron Dutt runs at Thorn. So this is where it's revealed that Thorn provided the weapon, the weapons for the Swampies, so he could attack the Swampies and get rid of them, yeah? Which is exactly what Morgus does in Case of Androzani. Um, he's, like, providing mm-hmm. weapons for both sides, isn't he? So it's, it's like, the same sort of... Yeah. I, you just can't figure out what's going on in that scene, because the, the, the weapon explodes in the Swampies' face, and then Ron Thar's just going, Thorn! like that you know and, and i was just like this is how they reveal this twist which is basically <laughs> yeah, like the plot and i was just going what's going on why why is he shouting <laughs> at him well, it was so clear in case of androzani you know and it was so like norris's treachery is is beautifully done it's such a poisonous character whereas here it's the direction again 
that's just not making anything particularly clear. And it's a clever idea. It's a smart concept, but it's just not executed with any kind of finesse. Yeah, I I mean, I wasn't particularly surprised by it. Just on the grounds that as soon as I saw that character introduced, I was like, oh, something like this is probably going to happen to him. Um, uh, he's going to, he, something's going to go wrong. Um, he's going to be does found it. out. He's going to be caught. If you're going to go, you may as well go mm. in one of Kroll's sloppy tentacles. Yeah. Uh, not just slo- uh, sloppy, but very, very, l- you know, dangling, limp. Can I ask a question? Yeah, go for it. Is, is the future powered by Crow's wet farts? <laughs> yes, that is entirely true. That I, You know, I wrote it down because the Doctor and Romana stopped to go like, how are they producing this amount of methane? And I'm just like... Uh, it's because Kral, Kral just keeps farting. He just keeps doing it. He's, he just keeps having the bottom you know, If this was a new series episode, they would say the word fart, wouldn't they? Oh, they would. They would. If, um, you know, if it was Russell T. Davis oh, writing... If Russell T. Davis was writing the sequel to The Power of Kral... Um, He's certainly not is, shy about flatulence, is he? Yeah. it would. Kral would be, uh, like, I don't know, he'd be... This huge monster in the heart, in like the the new New York Senate building. I just thought he's taken over. If he, he would rise up, and it would just be like the Phantom Raspberry Pi, like. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so funny. And it would turn out. That- it would turn out crawls like a close relation. It's like the species is, you know, from a, the one of the moons of Rhesacorocephalopotorus. Oh my god, man! We should, we should write this shit. <laughs> Imagine the fanboys. Uh, my god, they'd hate it, wouldn't they? Oh, oh they would. They would. But I was Can't just really confused. I was really confused how like thoughts create power. <laughs> Yeah, not just power. I think they say protein as well. Oh, oh, they're eating it too. They're eating his shit. Well, there you go. So is the power I, of Kroll uh, the, the the key to time segment, or is the power of Kroll his farts that's providing power <laughs> for people? What is the power of Kroll? I think at the end there's an explanation that Kroll is one of these little because remember when they're going back to the TARDIS, they find oh, one of those yeah. damp little squids. Um, <laughs> and I think they said Kroll ate the symbol, uh, and it got large, it became huge because it had eaten the key to time, essentially. That's right, yeah, yeah. So, so oh, wait, so then now there's no power, so the doctor's crippled the future. Uh, apparently, I, I think so. Uh, see, we should have. It should have been like when he left in the long game and then came back in uh, Bad Wolf and realised it was a hundred years of hell. <laughs> there should have been Power of Kroll, the sequel, and the Doctor. You know, yeah. was like, oh no, there was no power for the entire universe. No more farts for anybody. No more poo to eat. I'm sorry, this has gone really, really <laughs> crap obsessed. Um, yeah. Well, you know. I, it's a thing. Yeah, well, 
Sure. (laughs) I'm sure there is a a wonderful version of this story where the Doctor Time travels a thousand years into the future and the Swampies are still there. They're just like, you betrayed us. Look at what happened because of you. Actually, it should have been revealed in Case of Androzani. That's why everyone's so horrid and awful in that story, because they had no power and they had to, like, you know, find some alternative means. I really love the implication here, which is that Peter Davison had to regenerate because of the power of Kral. <laughs> the power of Kral influences that, all. Yeah, that that the, the the fatal mistake was nothing to do about a decision the Fifth Doctor made. It was in fact Tom Baker in the power of Kral. Okay, okay. I, I... There's another another element to this that we've kind of avoided completely, and that is the very clumsy racism angle in this story. Yeah, which is immediately brought up in that first scene. Like, you know, there's one piece carrying the tray, isn't it? And there's like a, a an element of colonialism here as well. Um, yeah, but it's, it's very it's, black I'd and say white. It's more than just an element. It's very black and white. Yeah, it's, isn't it? There's no grey at all. It's very much no. See the, the I, the, I think this is we essentially just drifted away from our starting premise, and we're just having a general conversation about the we power. Have, of we're just having a pop here now. Yeah. I I mean, it's not that I don't think um, uh, you know doing that kind of story is a bad thing. No, uh, I don't think there's only. anything. I, th- I like. I think, generally speaking, science fiction has been used as an avenue to 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 work metaphorically for social issues, including stuff like colonialism and the treatment of indigenous, you know, peoples, as is the case in Kroll. It's However, something that Star Trek does particularly well. <laughs> takes contemporary social issues and plants it in the future and provides a mirror. I don't know if Doctor Who's always done it amazingly well, but Doctor Who's more of a, like an adventure series, isn't it? So, yeah, it's not really I, the point. And, and certainly here, <clears throat> um, there, there, there are two, there are two sides to this. One of them is the fact that, as you say, it is so basically written. There's no subtlety. There's no nuance. And fundamentally, there's no depth to it. It's just like, oh, we are mean people. Well, I mean, and the trouble want- is, is you've got three characters there, yeah, in the refinery. And one is like, oh, those horrible, green, ugly swines. You know, that's how he starts. And then you've got John Leeson's character, who's like, oh, I'm from Sons of Earth. Everyone deserves, you know, the same rights. And then you've got um, Philip Maddox's character, and more on him later, <clears throat> going, I think he actually has a line where he says, oh, well, I don't really like the Swampies, but I don't really hate them either. Wow, is that the complexity <laughs> that we're dealing with here? He's like he's like literally <laughs> the, ambigu- uh, yeah, the ambiguous one. Mm. I do think actually he does get a bit of a, a nicer moment later when uh, John Leeson is killed. And he, oh, they have that. that is. Sorry, Jonathan, but you are so bad in this story. <laughs> when he's talking about the storm, I, he's like, it's, oh my I, God, it's a whopper. <laughs> he's far more convincing oh, no, as a tin dog than he is as a human being, I have to say. Oh, he, de- 
I he, no, he doesn't say whoop. He's like that's it's a daddy of a well, storm. That's or something. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the grand it's daddy like, of okay. them all. Oh, it's like, okay, John, you go for it. Um, uh, no, but it, it's after he's been killed off, and the and um, Phil, uh, is it Phil Maddock? Is that is that's his yeah, name? Is Philip, it Philip Maddock? Uh, I should I should, Philip Maddock. He uh, and hear him, and they have a, a little discussion about like whether he was in the right to kill him. And it's not revolutionary or anything. It's not groundbreaking writing, but there he, there are a couple of nice lines in there because he gets to say he's like you know, you know, suspicion of he's uh, Philip Maddox says something like you know, uh, just because you suspected he was with the Sons of Earth doesn't mean you had any right to actually kill him. Whereas he's going like, <clears throat> oh, I was completely justified. It was just. I think he says something really ridiculous, like it was justified manslaughter or something. Oh, justifiable homicide. Yeah. Just before, justifiable just homicide, before that yeah. spear hits him and that very inappropriate blood starts gushing out everywhere. Yeah, I was going to say. I was like, ooh, blood in the yes, very, very old. Weirdly out of place in this story. Yeah, it's just like in nowhere else in the story is it that... I'm not even going to say violent, but that graphic, I suppose. I mean, I'd point to that scene and say that's, you know, the director is trying to present a drama because you really wouldn't have that in a comedy. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know, you know, I, I quite like the fact that, though, like it would have been so easy to just paint the Swampies as victims who were just lovely people who were so, you know, and they're, they're not, they're just awful they're horrible people that try and kill the doctor and romana and you've got ranquin who's a complete high priest hypocrite um mm-hmm. you know but there's okay. that funny moment where uh, i think at the end uh he's just like uh you know he's like oh i think that's crawl what do we do and he gets on his knees and starts praying and tom baker kind of join him he's like oh crawl please forgive us and tom baker says something is that your is that your or considered opinion. <laughs> That's Tom Baker lifting it up again. But um, I, I think like it's all, yeah, anyway, it's all very you. well. It's all very competent because Robert Holmes is a competent writer. None of it sparkles, and there's no great depth. So it's it's all stuff you can point out and say, yeah. okay, it's okay, you know. And there's a racism angle, and it's all right. But there's no oh, there's no subtlety to it at all. You know, this isn't Rosa, is it? No, absolutely not. It's not. It's not. Uh, you know, it's not even human nature. No, exactly. So, are you are you are you saying it's it's just really terrible then? I I stand by uh, what I said, which is that you know it's the Tom Baker show carrying it on its worst day, <laughs> and the fact worst day, worst on the world. No, not worse than Underworld, but on a, on a bit of a, a, a humdrum day, shall we say. Do you not think the scenes in the refinery are just interminable? You know, I, I, stop, I, I stopped taking notes during them. I was just like, this, this, this is just the same scene. I went and made my dinner during one of those really long refinery scenes, and then I came back and the plot hadn't moved on. They were just talking about, like, viscosity... <laughs> And things like this, and I was like, "Oh, I'm boring." I'll go and add some salt to it now as well. Do you do you, do you know what I did? I I, I took out the washing. 
So there you go. There's a good argument for power across. Something to have on in the background whilst you're doing your chores. I'm not even sure if it's good or to have in the background. Actually, no, there's immense entertainment value with actually seeing Kroll himself turn up. That's when you turn up and you're like, yeah, that, that this, was, is, this that, is a B movie. Yeah, we needed more of that, though, don't you think? Like, we needed more, like, Innovation of Dinosaurs. They do, <clears throat> they do keep them back a bit. But there's enough dino action across six episodes to you know to really make it worthwhile. I think we only see Kroll like three or four times. I think he only he turns up at the end of episode two. That's right, yeah. Uh, and then he he's you you see him for the first time proper halfway through episode three. There's a terrific moment at the um, end of episode three where their boat is going towards Kroll. And it's just one of those things where you know in the future the Doctor's going to say, oh, once upon a time, you know, I, I was on a rowboat on Delta Magna and I nearly fell into the, the jaws of a giant squid. It'd be one of these crazy mm. stories that he tells. Although Romana's hilarious in that scene because Crow is literally right in front of them. <laughs> and suddenly she just goes, oh, look! <laughs> it's literally <laughs> 300 foot tall. Yeah, and you have and you have that with all the other guys where they're just like, I can't see it from here. It's like, where are you looking? <laughs> it's bloody enormous. Okay, do you know what? I'm going to say something positive about this story. I'm curious to see what you got. Well, I think it's basically three terribly humdrum episodes peppered with some sparkling dialogue. But I actually think it kind of comes together in the last episode. And there's some fairly gripping stuff happening like you know gripping maybe that's a, a a step too far but you know there's a lot of action in the last episode i really like the last bit on the rig where he's fighting the tentacles to try and turn it into the key to yeah. time i i'm sure top baker must be in paradise by that point on the commentary track yeah oh he's laughing his head off oh well no actually most of the most of the story he's going oh mary Oh, Mary, she still, you know, she still uh, comes close to me and whispers in my ear. <laughs> yeah, God, Tom Baker. Oh, Tom Baker is such a strange man. I keep forgetting this. He's actually incredibly weird. But, but wonderful. Yeah, yeah, of course. He is Tom Baker. I mean, I will say there, um, there are a handful of stories that are infinitely more enjoyable with the commentaries on than just watching them on their own. Like Time Flight's another one. Mm -hmm. It's ba well, basically all the oh, shit maybe... stories. It's just better to watch them with the commentaries on. Do you know, I think I think the problem I, I've had so far with the power of Kroll is Kroll. that bum, bum, it bum. isn't... Bum, 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 bum. Kroll. Bum, bum, bum. Kroll. Bum, 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 bum. Maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> this week, instead of our usual theme, we should just put the crawl music. Oh, no, you know, the, you know what's really funny as well is where he makes that flute and it's like... I love that bit. It's so, it's so very in character for the Doctor just Off to turn up and just make a flute out of... <laughs> just like putting a glass of water in his pocket. Yeah, <clears throat> or, you know, shattering glass with his famous opera singing. <laughs> I just keep thinking, hmm, this would be useful in many other situations you've been in, Doctor. Do you think they utilise the key to time element well in this? No, of course not. <laughs> not at all. 
I mean, I mean, it is the catalyst for the entire story. Like, you know, if Kroll wasn't massive, they wouldn't be getting the power from him. They wouldn't be worshipping him. There wouldn't be this enormous monster to fight. That's right. It's, it's, I guess it's fair. And but by taking know, it, by more... taking it away, that does resolve the story. I, uh, yeah, yeah, they, it's integrated into the plot, into the resolution of the story, fine. It's not integrated into the journey of the story very well at all. No, but then it kind of wasn't, was it, throughout the season, really? No, but then it, but it was done so funny sometimes. Like, I think in, um, the, the androids of Tara, oh, yeah. I love it because they, they just turn up and find it immediately. And I'm going to go off and find it in five minutes. Oh, fine. I'm going to stay here and go fishing. Yeah. And I think it's so funny that in, you know, Androids of Tara, they find it straight away. And then they're not even looking for it for the rest of the story, really. They just get swept up in a completely unrelated adventure. And again, you know what? One day I'm going to do justice for the Armageddon factor because I really like it. Um I think that's probably the story where it's used the best, where it's the princess. And there's actually like a moral conversation about turning her into a segment of the key. Yeah, because, well, the, the key to time, it, in the reboot operation, it's the Jethric, isn't it? Uh, yes, yeah. Pirate planet, it's the, the planet. It, yeah, it's the planet itself, crushed down. Which is that's a fantastic uh, idea. Mm. Then in is it the so it's the stones of blood next, isn't it? Oh, it's the the pendant, isn't it? The necklace. Yeah, that's right. Um, but again, that's quite clever the, that one because it, it's shown to be like the symbol of her power and how she's kind of achieved everything that she's done. But like you say, for this one, it's not integral to the plot. Mm. Uh, and then in Androids of Tara, it mm. is. What is it in Androids of Tara? It's like an ancient relic and yeah, it's the like landscape, a, isn't it? What's happened to the statue is what the uh, Yeah, says. I thought it was a, I thought, I thought it was a statue. Then in Kroll, it is a giant squidgy monster tentacle man. Yeah. Uh, uh, then in what's after that? Is that Armageddon? And then it's Armageddon factor, and it's the princess. So it's quite imaginative. They're quite imaginative mm-hmm. things. Mm, as objects, yeah. I mean, you, imagine if they'd just get... been like just keys, like they are in the keys of Baroness, just these like plastic keys. Oh, that would have been exciting. Mm. So, really, the only ones that you have moral dilemmas are about are, you know, can we turn Lala Ward into a key? Um, and, yes, um, and then we'll keep her uh, as Romana. Uh, or alternatively, you have. I suppose there is a slight ethical, or there's an ethical dilemma in the crushing of Zanak, uh, but not in using it as a as a uh, as a as part of the key to time. That's that's very true, and much like Power of Kroll is the precursor to Kaiser Androzani, the Pirate Planet is the precursor to the Battle of Ranskor Afgolos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every Doctor Who story is is linked to it to another one somehow. They're all they're all they're all the best story of all time. Well, I defy you to make the argument that Chris Chibnall is the writer that Douglas Adams is. I I'm not going to be that man. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not going to do it for you. Do you think anyone would? Let's say there's someone out there that would make any argument, but 
I, maybe, I feel like there might be. Um, so, I mean, you, you can make that case, you can definitely make that case for Russell T. Davis, you can definitely make that case for Stephen Moffat. I'm not sure if you can for Chris Chibnall, but I, I can't wait to see the person who can. Well, since uh, I think we have not only abandoned the structure of this podcast, because <clears throat> I don't think you can <clears throat> uh, convincingly say that The Power of Kroll is the greatest Doctor Who story of all time. I, 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 you know what, I, maybe, the, maybe I'll, I'll be struck <clears throat> with genius about three podcasts from now. And I was like, no, we're going to do this premise again. We're going to do it, it right. Here's my argument. Although, you know what, you made a better stab than I ever would have. Because you know what I would have gone for? I would have just gone for the B-movie <laughs> angle and just said it. It's just so horrendously awful. It's just deliriously enjoyable to watch. That would have been my angle. Yeah. Yeah, but I also kind of cheated by using the Caves of Andrazani as oh. an excuse to say Power of Kroll is a better story. It's like it's like oh, clinging onto going, its coattails as Caves of Andrazani soars yeah. along. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, or in the, or clinging on with various tentacles wrapped around them. Uh, I do like how this podcast, this one in particular, it kind of echoes uh, the structure of an episode of the Key to Time series where we have a premise at the start, get the key, and yeah. then we've just abandoned we it just roof, immediately yeah, after. Ruthlessly just toss it to one side and, and do what we like. <laughs> yeah. So in some ways, we're being very faithful to season 16. Indeed. And it's one of your favorites it's one of my favorites as well yeah i i really enjoy it. it i think it's quite underrated i think a lot of people get bogged down on the question of does a quest structure actually work for doctor who which is a fair point but i just think it's a big you know sunny holiday it's of a series just so much fun isn't it and, and i'd say this is the least fun of that season because I, I would agree there's there's plenty to enjoy in the armageddon factor like five or six mary tams appearing and lala ward being in it and the shadow yeah. going yeah as well yeah exactly yeah. however what i do have here is some alternative opinions to our own um of people that oh, yeah. that have uh, i asked i just threw it out there and said what do people think of the power of crawl and interestingly there is a fair spread of comments are you ready oh, for this i'm really curious so dale watts says boring tedious crap crawl <laughs> looks good though oh sorry crawl looks cool though um jonathan yeah. burt says a brilliant and epic romp Wow, I really want to. I really want to sit inside his head and see the version of Kroll that he saw. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it kind of is epic, isn't it? Like they're, they're going for epic. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, Christopher Gideon says, "Unpopular opinion. It's actually my second favorite of the Key to Time arc, just after the Pirate Planet." Ooh, um, that I is an interesting set of priorities there. I love the swamp setting as well as the tension between races. So there's someone who enjoyed the racism angle. 
Yeah, cool. <laughs> I, if if it works for you. Okay, this is my favourite though. Franco Gioni Dyer says, "Out of time chanting, grow, boom, 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 grow, grow," and that's all he says. Now that now that is an opinion I can back. I, I I vouch for him. Tom Berwick says, "Nowhere near as bad as its reputation. Not as good as any of the previous stories of season sixteen, but still pretty good and definitely better than the Armageddon Factor." Oh, the poor Armageddon Factor. Oh. You could fry eggs on the street. Uh, Blake Meadowcraft says, meh. Not the worst, but to me, it's easily the weakest story of the key to time story arc. The anti-racism subtext of the piece isn't subtle, but is competent at the very least. The location work is really good, and Kroll is a great-looking monster. On the other hand, the direction, oh, yes, can be pretty weak. Its story is pretty cliched. The characters aren't very memorable or likable, and it can sometimes be too serious for its own good. Does that mean, is he saying it's just very middle of the road? Yep, pretty much. Are you sure you didn't write that opinion? Oh, I've got a comment here from a guy called Paul Quinn. This is my ex-neighbor. When I was born, he was my neighbor, and at four years old, he introduced me to Doctor Who. Oh, wow. So he's responsible this is, this for is, a lot. And what's his historic opinion? He, oh, I love his opinions are fat. He says, fascinating first draft of the case of Androzani, but Holmes' worst script since the Space Pirates and the worst Doctor Who performances of Philip Maddock and John Abenary. But who could have done better given the costume and the requirement to be shocked, awed and aroused by Kroll's hairy, limp tentacle? <laughs> he's a great guy um, I it sounds like it I, I, I back anyone who, who writes an opinion piece like that and finally Jason A. Miller says the Terrence Dix novelisation reveals what it should have been under all the bad acting Maddock is terrible the character Hog is named only for his death scream oh, Oh, uh, the name Scar is even worse. Scar, I just realised. Yeah. Oh, Scar, far. Oh dear. But it's but it's interesting and witty if you can get past the production values. That's a fair spread of opinions there. <clears throat> yeah, not the universal. Oh God, it's crawl. Bum bum bum. Bum 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 bum. Crawl, crawl. Is it? Is it I, the best song in a Doctor Who story? I yeah, you know all those great musical numbers that Murray Gold wrote throughout mm. the show. Put them in the bin. Get rid of them. There's only one. There's only one, and that's the 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 Kroll song. I mean, I think I think there's something very interesting to say about Power of Kroll, and that is we managed to talk for at least an hour longer about Underworld. <laughs> Did we? Does this? Yeah, we talked over two hours about Underworld. So does this? That, does that make you this know, the worst Doctor Who story of all time? What, Kroll or Underworld? Kroll. I would. Yes, I think we had a lot more fun talking about Underworld. So is it, or is it just one of the most unmemorable stories? How can it be unmemorable? It had a giant squid. It. It's. I think it's very weird because I feel like. Kroll is probably a, 
a more entertaining story to watch. The dialogue's better, generally speaking, and it's more consistently entertaining. However, I think Underworld is somehow a lot more fun to talk about. Yeah, I would say it's more fun to watch, but there's so much behind-the-scenes stuff happening that it's a lot more interesting to talk about. And nothing has haunted my dreams more than the shot of Tom Baker, Louise Jameson, and that one other guy just slowly floating down. Honestly, I don't I don't need to take any kind of drug because that's all I'd see. There's nothing as like deliriously enjoyable as that in this, is there? No, I don't think so. I feel I've suddenly become very down on Kroll all of a sudden. Who would yeah. who who saw that coming? And yet, do you know what? Whenever I watch it, I kind of come away because I think the last episode is the strongest. I kind of come away thinking, yeah, oh, that weren't bad actually. I think if I if I switched yeah, it off it, after it just, episode two, I'd be like, yeah, I think I think it it, it doesn't leave a bad taste mm-hmm. in your mouth by the time it ends. And there's something really fun about, uh, uh, you know. I really like this is just unrelated, but I really like that the the TARDIS is in, like submerged in the reeds. I think that's a funny, fun oh, little image, and I like. Lovely, yeah. And so it's always it's really funny seeing the TARDIS the kinda, in like unusual locations. It's always really nice, isn't it? Like <clears throat> it always kind of stands. Yeah. Out. Okay, I, I have, I have a saying, I have a challenge for you then. Okay. What are your uh, top three oversized monsters? Because there are many. Oversized monsters? Yeah, because I keep trying this. The dinosaurs, the Scarathan, uh, the Merka, um, <laughs> the mighty Jagrafess. Oh, oversized monsters. Uh, I'm going to say one of them is the Cyber King. Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, I mean, anything to enliven the next Doctor. <clears throat> uh, uh, oversized monster. Uh, just, just because of the way he was shot in the shadows before actually coming out into the daylight, the Fisher King. Oh, actually, that's that's a really well realized monster, isn't it? Yeah, until you see him in daylight, and he looks like. <laughs> and then he's just when the, when the actor's like wobbling at the end when he's trying to like get away from the tidal wave. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, but you know <clears throat> when he's in the shadows, the Fisher King actually looks really spooky. There's that one um, still shot, isn't there, of Capaldi against him in silhouette, taking yeah, from the distance. And it's then... really kind of menacing. Uh, so we've got, yeah, Cyber King, the Fisher King, one more oversized monster. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Um, hmm. If you don't go for Big Man T-Rex from Invasion of the Dinosaurs. I haven't seen the Invasion of the Dinosaurs, actually. And his little flappy arms. (laughs) He has a fight Uh, with a brontosaurus and draws blood. It's fantastic. Is that is would you put the dinosaurs as one of your top three? For sure. Number one would be, it? would be Big Man T Rex. <laughs> Number two would be Scarasan, especially the glove puppet one that comes up like in front of the Thames. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, can I say the Loch? Can I say the Loch Ness monster? Yeah, that's that's the Scarasan. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, yeah. You just reminded me. It's like, like, yeah, I'll you go can literally see the man's hand going. No, 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 no. I changed my answer. I changed my answer. Oh, I know what I'm going to say. Go on. Uh, it, the drashings. Oh, the drashings are great. They are really great. Oh, I suppose you could make a case for like the cat in Planet of Giants as well, but only because they're like an inch tall. <laughs> but my third one would have to be Kroll. <laughs> Kroll. Boom, boom, boom. Sorry, I'm oh. doing that. But Kroll, I mean, the Kroll no. creature himself is is really good. I, It's a good model. Mm. It's good. Mm. It, it's just, I, I don't, do you know what the problem is with these giant oversized monsters is? Is um, Doctor Who's kind of a show that uh, relies on the villains or the monsters having some kind of personality and wit. Because generally speaking, half the time they realise terribly. And all of these ones, they just go Bleh. Yeah, you know, and how do you have a dialogue with somebody like that? Yeah, nonsense. You had Tom Baker, you know, there's I'm sure there's a, a really funny deleted scene of uh Tom Baker going, Do I have the right to crawl? Do you know what we've forgotten? What have we forgotten? The creature, the creature, oh, oh, with his oversized right. phallus. <laughs> and Douglas Adams got around it because they managed to have a dialogue, didn't they? You're right. You're right. Uh, they use because they get that little communicator translator yeah. device, don't they? And it's like Lala Ward's voice and Tom Baker's voice. I'd forgotten about that one actually. That's but, a good point. I, I think it would have been very odd had Kroll kind of emerged and I don't know, taken off a top hat with his tentacle and been like, "Oh, well, I'm here." <laughs> Will we have strawberry jam for tea? Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. <laughs> well, no, that, probably Hello, my would have, that probably would have been more funny than what we got. <laughs> Hello, my ragtime girl. <laughs> Every time he emerges, he does a musical number. <laughs> oh. That'd be funny. I don't know. Like from Oliver Twist or something. <laughs> You could sing, rescue me from this bloody boring story. Rescue me. Oh, crap. <laughs> oh, what could we? Oh, I, I, he should sing one of Murray Gold's songs. Like, I don't know, The Stowaway or something from Voyage of the Damned. Oh, no. What if he came up and, and, and just had like the, the Chancellor Flavia voice and was like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> That would that would lend Kroll a mythic quality he this, he does not deserve. I feel like we are so off topic now. <laughs> we have to dive off somewhere mental. No, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure there is a comedy scene that is like Tom Baker talking to Kroll, and Kroll's just going, and Tom Baker's like, no, Harold. Crawl, we must find a way. <laughs> you know, yeah. have you seen Gremlins 2? You know that one who, who's like, all we want is, you know, the same as everybody else. Like, and he's got like a top hat. Crawl could be like that, just really well spoken. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't Kroll. mind, but you just keep taking away my thoughts to power <laughs> the world. And really, all you had to do was ask. <laughs> Just send me the odd high priest, you know, when I'm hungry. 
Well, they, they do say in the story that Kroll isn't a meat eater, actually, but he 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 only eats people when needs must because he recognises people are a wholesome meal. Oh, I find them a bit indigestible, but I take what I can. <laughs> He's just like a very polite. You just like, you know, know Tom Baker will play those scenes to the hill, don't you? <laughs> I just like the idea that Kroll, you know, he's like a terribly polite dinner guest who gets given bad food, but is just too polite to <laughs> to, to make a fuss about it. Oh my god, it'd be like that sketch from Mitchell Webb where uh, they go all about James Bond, but they'd be like, "Oh god, you know, is Sandra bringing her other half? Who's that? Oh, Kroll." <laughs> he destroyed the table last time. He got slime all over the place. <laughs> Kroll's like fussing around with all his tentacles. No, I'm going to pay the check. Let me find my credit card. It's here somewhere. Don't give him too much to eat because his bodily uh, actions are just out of this world. Come on, Kroll. Where's your wallet? I don't know. I'm just going to flap around. It will fall out of a body roll. Now I'm just thinking of like a dinner scene with all, like, and, you know, obviously in this huge cavernous space with all the giant <laughs> monsters from Doctor Who coming together. The Scarasan, the Murka, the cat from Planet of the Giant. Oh, no, because he's not actually speak. Um, Kroll. Oh, my word. That's not <laughs> worth watching. I wonder who... I wonder who Kroll would be having polite conversations with. Mm. Pity the girl. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Oh, no. So they're the ultimate gaseous monsters, aren't they? Oh, dear. Oh, no. The Children of Kroll, the sequel. How could we have not known? <gasps> yeah, like, like the children from um, The Runaway Bride. The Children of Kroll. That sounds like... And they could do it in CG now as well. <laughs> CG crawls. Oh, they did the macro, didn't they? Oh, yeah. That's true. I don't know. We are literally, we're so desperate to talk about things about the power of crawl. This is where we've become. Yeah. Well, did you, did we say we were going to talk about Philip Maddock a little bit more? Uh, well, just that he's just very grumpy because it's not the role he was promised. Yeah, because because yeah, he wasn't he promised the captain. Yeah, like the you know the the psycho that he plays so well. Oh, and he ended up he ended up playing the guy who stares at a screen going mm, it hasn't moved for fifteen minutes. I, I, you know what? I really love all the bits where they're just like, have a look at this. Yeah. It's just a bunch of wavy lines. Dreadful graphics. Yeah. Oh, bless him. It's um, just like what what. They can really see things in ways I cannot see in the future. What's a shame is Philip Maddock and John Avenaria, as Paul said, they've both played really great characters before, like Solon, like the War Chief, like General Carrington from Ambassadors of Death. And this is where they both bow out of Doctor Who. <laughs> I heard they, that Ma Martin Jarvis was originally supposed to be in the story as well. Oh, really? Yes, he oh. God. Doctor Who just has this ability to attract these fantastic names in these uh, run-of-the-mill stories. Contentiously, you could say, beneath their talents. No, realistically, you could definitely say beneath <laughs> their talents. But you know what? It was thanks to their sacrifice 
that we got the caves and the pictures. That's <laughs> very true. That is very true. And you know what? I would still, if I was doing the Keats time season, I would always put on the power of crow. I do enjoy it. I do. I, I don't think it's good, but I do enjoy it. What What's your favourite moment from the power of crow? Um, I think it's just any appearance of Crow, really. <laughs> I just, it, it, just like, especially the tentacles when they're just really badly done. There's one sequence. Uh, I think it's the bit where Rankin's taken away, and it's clearly been done in reverse. So they've wrapped the tentacle around him, and then he's kind of like come out Ooh. of the pipe, and then they reverse the shot. So it looks like he's being dragged away. Very funny. They do that to Tom Baker at the end as well, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Well, needs must. Which is, yeah, you know, we've got deadlines to meet. <laughs> we've got to get moving. We've got to go to bed. So come on in. Tell people what we're going to talk about next week. Because I think this will be a far... They're far less run-of-the-mill stories, that's for sure. Yes, I, I think... We've alluded to this one before, but I think next week, assuming we don't change our minds, but I feel like we're going to stick to our guns no, on this one. I want some heads to roll. Yeah. <laughs> Ours. Yeah, probably. Um, I, it's gonna, this is going to be like, you know, some kind of French Revolution execution of the bourgeoisie kind of decapitation for us. We're courting um, controversy, aren't we? Yeah, so I think, so for next week, we're going to, each of us respectively, be making the case for two of the most divisive stories of recent memory. I will be making the case for Hellbent. Joe will obviously, Joe will obviously be prosecuting against, and Joe will then, most unfortunately, make the case for the Timeless Children. Yeah. And I and it will be up to me to kind of go, Joe. Come on, we're good friends. We don't need to do this to ourselves. We well, see. I really dislike Hellbent. I don't think you like hate the Timeless Children, do you? You're, you're just very on the fence with it. I I would say I I I'm on the fence about its implications. I don't think it's necessary necessarily a good story uh which is uh a certainly more muted response mm. than some people have to it because some people really hate it mind you some people really hate Al Ben. this is true so naturally we're gonna have, we're, we're gonna come to conclusions that nobody is gonna have every any issue with and everybody's gonna get along with us just fine i'm just truly excited to watch both of them back to back and take some notes. Oh, true. And it's so interesting because they're both series finale set on Gallifrey as well. Steeped in continuity, probably doing precisely what Rusty Davis tried to avoid when he brought the series back. Although, I mean, originally these days he he, he says, um, you know, he wish he'd done a bit more continuity. But maybe that's with hindsight. Maybe in the moment his instincts were right. I think both Hellbent and the Timeless Children, uh, they could sit comfortably um, into the 80s, into that period of the 80s where the show was like drowning in continuity. 
and um, kind of lost the ability to tell like uh, a gripping story away from like Doctor Who mythos. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can so, see, I can see why um, a member of the public would watch both of them and just be like, "What is this? What am I supposed to take? What am I supposed to take from this?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually, having mentioned Russell T Davies, I remember. I'm sure you know this because I think you read the interview uh, where he said um, if he was ever to do a sequel of a class, one of his regrets is that he never got to write a, an explicit sequel to a classic Doctor Who story. Who's that, um, Rusty Davis? Yeah, uh, and he said if he if he could write a sequel to a classic Doctor Who story, he would go with um, uh, the image of Fendal. Ooh, interesting. Is it Fendal? 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 Yeah. Yeah. He 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 would write a sequel to that, uh, and that would be his choice. That's an interesting pick. I think Moffat did a fair few sequels, didn't he? When when you think about yeah. it, yeah. Certainly, Day of the Doctor uh, feels like a a sequel of sorts to Terror of the Zygons. Uh, yeah, he had um, <clears throat> uh, Magician's Magician's Apprentice was a s- s- kind of sequel to Genesis of the Daleks in some ways. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's another one. I suppose you could kind of call Twice Upon a Time an expansion of the Tenth Planet. <laughs> And what's very odd about the timeless children is Chibnall suddenly decides, well, he just suddenly decides to do the very thing he said he was pushing away from. You know, series 11 was so disconnected from the past and suddenly series 12 is absolutely drowning in it. Yeah. And suddenly the Morbius doctors are there. Oh, well, we'll we'll save that for for next time. There's so much to unpick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not... Yeah, let's not, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. I, I, you know, I gave that episode an eight out of ten, and I've rewatched it recently, and I would still give that episode eight out of ten. So I will make a very positive argument for the timeless children. Mm-hmm. I'd probably sit around a similar mark for Hell Bent. Really? <laughs> wow. Okay. Maybe, maybe, possibly closer to a seven. Hellman got a three from me, and I'll be interested to see because I've heard of some people come back to it and say actually it's not as bad as they remember. <laughs> Is that because they watch the time as children? Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's not be mean. Or maybe let's because not it, be mean, I mean, it, came, it came after heaven sent for goodness sake. They didn't really have a chance. <laughs> no, it was. Um... It has it has a rough ride by comparison, <laughs> but uh, that's for but next that's, week. Uh, yes, where you know we're going to make as many friends as we will enemies. Oh, we'll make far more enemies, and that's you know kind of fun <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think it's nice to give an appraisal to stories that a lot of people criticise. I think that's always nice to do to do that angle. And I think kind of if you look back at the last 10, we've been really positive about a lot of what we've talked about, even the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. I was going to say with the appraisals, it's such a shame that we couldn't entirely do that here with Kroll. No, we've kind of come to the conclusion that Kroll is... eh. I feel like for me, I was just like, I've made my case. 
Oh. I'm not going to argue it further. I feel about 45 minutes in, you just was like, oh, yeah, no, nah, I, <laughs> I just can't do this. It was, I think the exact point was when you were like, so what about the Swampies, eh? How do you justify them? And I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. But you know what? I think we've kind of re- come to the conclusion as well that even poor-ish Doctor Who is still watchable. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I think I entirely agree with the the people who say this is not as bad as some people make it out to be. It's not It's not a great Doctor Who story by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not one of the worst, most offensive things the show has ever put onto screen. Possible. And also, as well, it gives me the opportunity to um, have a direct sequel to my favourite quote of yours, which is... At least you're not an extra in Underworld. Well, <laughs> at least you're not an extra in The Power of Troll, because that means you're yeah. going to be painted green and stuck in a boggy swamp. Yeah, somebody was telling, you know, an extra in Underworld that when they were watching Crawl on the telly. Oh, thank God I got that Underworld gig <laughs> instead of Crawl. I might have been in front of a green screen, but it is pissing down there. <laughs> like, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the extras in Underworld was close mates with one of the extras and crawl and the crawl guy was like you will not believe the day i'm just <laughs> the extras pull i've been walking around in a swamp and green paint and i haven't been able to wash it off for three days wow maybe we'll have to do a whole episode about extras <laughs> which, which stories would it be the worst to be extras in oh uh, definitely the daleks would be up there surely <laughs> Yeah, the ones that are laughing and falling to the ground with the Daleks exterminating. Oh, no, yeah. Resurrection of the Daleks, yeah. the ones that are like, like when they die. <laughs> that uh, would be a fun one. But we should put a pin on that one. On the extras note, let us sign off. Uh, we'll be back in with a the- week's time. Do you want to do this? We 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 gotta we gotta give it a go. Five, four, three, two. One. Deny and be praised. Deny and be praised. Oh, God. You didn't even start that time. Oh. Do you know what? Do you know what I think? Go on. There are exactly four words in the Nine and be praised. I think we like...